Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks, Riley and music team, for leading us in worship. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Matt. I have the joy of serving on staff here at GOC. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. I know uh, the main reason why you're here is probably Broomball, so we'll just resign to that for now. But, um, man, the, this level of smack talk on Facebook and all that uh, about Broomball tonight is at all GOC history high. I mean, we got Pig Latin smack talk. Guys using their announcements, ministry opportunities to smack talk. I mean, this is like next level. So Chris actually even made a bold prediction last week. I think, I think it was last week. Um, so I'm going to make a bold prediction of my own because, you know, if we were all wanting to and able to bet, we probably would. But um, my bold prediction is that it's not going to be the freshman class that wins. Sorry. It's not going to be the sophomore class that wins. It's not going to be the senior class that wins either. Sorry, I know you have one more chance. I'm, my bold prediction is not one, not two. Yeah, two. We'll settle with two. Two years in a row where there's going to be no injuries. So that's my bold prediction. No, no hospitalized injuries. That's, that's two years in a row. Um, so we'll see. Juniors. Juniors, maybe you'll take it, but that's two years in a row, no hospitalizations. I think Jeffrey will take that. Uh, that's my bold prediction uh, tonight. <laughs> um, have fun, guys, in all seriousness, and stay safe, please. Um, uh, before we, we enjoy that time together, uh, we, have, we have the privilege of coming to God's Word. We have a divine appointment with His, with his Word tonight. So uh, let me just pray again briefly and ask the Lord's help. God, we thank you for this time uh, we pray, God, that this would be useful, um, it will be convicting, it will be humbling to approach your word, to hear your truth. So God, be glorified, Christ, be magnified. Spirit, we need your help, enlighten our hearts. So God, as we approach your word, help us, we pray in your son's name, amen. The day was March 23rd, 1775. In the build-up to the Revolutionary War, Patrick Henry, an attorney and orator, gave a call to arms that echoed in the meeting hall at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. He delivered this famous speech that successfully convinced the Second Virginia Convention to build a militia to stand against Great Britain. The punctuating moment of Henry's speech went like this. He said, Is life so dear or peace so sweet? as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. Now along with Paul Revere and George Washington crossing the Delaware, these stories inspire the American spirit, don't they? Especially for you when you read about them in the eighth grade. Now what you might not have known is that these very words have been used by people, people groups all over the world throughout history demanding the same exact thing. Freedom, liberty, excuse the pronunciations, but libertad o con gloria morir, liberty or with glory die, Uruguay's national anthem. Eleftheria e Thanatos, the motto of Greece, 
arisen from their fight for independence from the Ottomans. Volge grove, nego rove, better grave than slave, the motto of demonstration in Yugoslavia against a treaty with Nazi Germany. This cry for freedom, give me liberty or give me death, is the heart's cry of all of humanity. It represents what is in all of us, the desire to not be held captive, the passion to be free from restriction or limitation or confinement. It's a demand for individual rights and privileges. Give me liberty or give me death. It expresses what every individual person wants, what every individual person craves. Give me liberty, give me free reign, give me choice, or give me death. Now, to be honest, this demand for freedom is the priority many of us hold as we live the Christian life. It's the same desire for liberty, Christian liberties, we call them. The right to do what we want because I am free in Christ, are we not? The ability to live my own life and not be bothered by the haters, by the conservatives, by the legalists. Yet as we live this way and pursue our liberty, we do not realize there's a, there's a profound danger in this mentality, not in the activities themselves. I'll let someone else preach that sermon another time. But in a heart of arrogance, perhaps, we cultivate as we insist on our freedoms. A heart that's opposed to the heart of tenderness, of obedience, of responsiveness, and of humility that God calls us to. The truth is the Bible paints a very different picture of so-called Christian liberties and real Christian liberty. As one commentator puts it, Freedom is not the exercise of unlimited spontaneity. It means instead to be set free from the bondage of sin in order to live in a way that reflects the nature and the character of God. That is to say, true Christian freedom is defined in relation to sin and in relation to God. Freedom from sin and therefore freedom to live for God. Scripture proclaims this truth of our freedom and at the same time presents a mysterious, a profound, and I would argue a counterintuitive truth. As Christians, we, we're free, but as Christians, we're slaves. We are slaves of God. Murray Harris says this, one of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to to slavery, and slavery leads to freedom. As soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, the one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. And so tonight as we continue in Romans, we'll see from our passage that the Christian life is life under God's righteous reign. The Christian life is life under God's righteous reign. It is to live righteously as one made righteous by a righteous God. It is to live entirely captivated by obedience to Christ. It is to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to His Word. Our existence has shifted from a life of pursuing our own desires into a pursuit of holiness. 
Our desires have changed to those of God's. Our passion is now to honor Christ. To be a Christian is to be, as Paul puts it in this text, to be a slave of righteousness. So turn, if you haven't already, to Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. The text tonight is verses 15 through 23. But we'll start reading in verse 14 for some context. Romans 6, starting in verse 14. Paul, Paul writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Romans. It's probably been actually a couple months. And so I want to quickly review. In chapters 1 through 3, we saw the wrath of God on the unrighteousness of man. So in one word, condemnation. In, ver- in chapters 3 through 5, we see the righteousness of God t- revealed to man in justification uh, through Christ. In chapters 6 through 8, now, as we, begin, as we continue this section, the, we see the righteousness of God demonstrated or played out in the believer's sanctification. So condemnation, justification, and now sanctification. Three really big words that can all be summarized with one word. It's kind of a summary statement for the book of Romans, and that's the concept of the righteousness of God. You see, man in sin is an affront to the righteousness of God. Yet God chose to display his righteousness through Christ. And now as we believers in Christ ought to display the righteousness of God. The word righteousness is referred to in the first few chapters, God's act of setting Christians, setting people right with himself, justifying them. But now in Romans, as we continue along, the word righteousness usually refers to behavior pleasing to God. It's behavior befitting of God and his righteousness. The righteousness of God as it plays out in the life of the believer. And so last time we were in Romans, Romans 6, the the first 14 verses, 
Uh, Jesse helps us to understand that text. And, and Paul there is characterizing the believer's righteousness using the analogy of death and life. That the believer has died with Christ to sin and is, al- is made alive in Christ to walk in, Paul says, newness of life. Now we see in our passage tonight, the Christian life, Paul characterizes it as life under God's righteous reign. That he has freed us from sin and made us slaves to righteousness. So chapter 6, really you could see it as two analogies. One of death and life, and then of free and slave. Paul lays out tonight in our passage three realities that motivate the believer to live under God's righteous reign. Three motivations, three realities that motivate the believer to live under God's righteous reign. And if I'll be honest, we need these motivations. As college students here, aspiring to the next best thing, the greater and the bigger and the better, we need this motivation tonight to live submissively, to live humbly, to live obediently under God's reign as his slaves. And so the first truth we see in this passage is you are a slave either to sin or righteousness. You are a slave either to sin or to righteousness. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Now last time we were in Romans, Paul answered a concern, a question. And it was stemming from all that he had shared in Romans so far, the great gospel of God, that if God's grace is so abundantly supplied through Jesus Christ to the most desperately sinful and wretched man, under that abundance of God's grace over sin, the question was, could or should the believer continue in sin so that the grace of God would keep abounding? But Paul says, may it never be, and shows what we call the believer's union with Christ. In our passage tonight, Paul answers another rhetorical question in response to verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So, in 6 verse 1, it is a question of sinning to gain or display more grace. But here in 6 verse 15, it is a question of sinning because of God's amazing grace. The question is, is in verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And Paul again answers the same way, may it never be. Now to understand this more fully, to, to understand verse 14, uh, we need to know that Paul is referring to this new era of God's grace manifested in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21 puts it this way, but now, that is with Christ in the picture, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and it's this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, before, God's people lived under God's righteous law. They were given it so that, as Exodus says, they would be, one, his treasured possession, two, a kingdom of priests, and three, a holy nation. But in following his law, the law only demonstrated how short man falls to the glory of God. The law that in chapter 3, verse 19 says, holds the whole world accountable to God. 
And so the purpose of the law, God's good and holy law, is that it exposes sin and leaves man to answer to God. But Paul is showing us here in Romans, Christ fulfilled that law. He died for you. He freed you from sin. And now you are no longer under that sin-exposing hold of God's law. But now you are under the righteous reign of the one who has given you his righteousness. In fact, in this chapter, Paul says, in his death you died to sin. Beginning of chapter 6. And in his being raised from from the dead, you are risen to walk in newness of life. And you are given now by the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to follow God's righteous commands in this new life under his reign. And this is incredible news, but it also brings the concern in our passage. The, the question, Paul imagines his Roman readers to be thinking, well, if we are under grace in this new era, and if the law lo- no longer needs to be obeyed in the way that Israel obeyed it, and if God's grace covers all sins, then believers must be perfectly free to do as they please. And so the Roman believers, perhaps some former Jews among them, who would have had a high regard for God's law, had this concern that Paul was somehow condoning lawlessness, sin, in the name of God's grace. In excess, perhaps. Now keep in mind already in this chapter, Paul has, has preached against sin in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, again, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, again, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But do you know why Paul has to to address this yet again? Because God's amazing grace is that unbelievable. It is that incomprehensible. It brings mind-blowing reversal to our economy of what is fair and right and just. And so Paul doubles down on this concern by showing us the wonderful, transformative, counterintuitive nature of God's amazing grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he answers loud and clear, repeating with the strongest negation he can, the same as in verse 2, by no means. May it never be, absolutely not. And here in our passage tonight, in this context, Paul puts forward an amazing reality. That the Christian is a slave. The Christian lives life under God's righteous reign, willingly, obediently, submissively. The Christian cannot continue to entertain sin just because he he is under the reign of God's grace. We cannot abuse God's grace as automatically forgiving of everything we do. As those who have been forgiven and redeemed, we are slaves of righteousness. And so his desire, Paul's desire, is to motivate us to live willingly, to live joyfully under God's righteous reign. Paul points out in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So Paul is saying, whoever you present yourself to continually obey, whatever master you decide you put yourself before, 
whether it's sin or it's, it's righteousness, you are slaves of which, whichever one you obey. This logic is very simple. Whatever you obey, you become enslaved to. You cannot present yourself to one master and then obey the other as well. You obey either sin or righteousness. And you are therefore a slave of whichever one you actually obey. And this is our first motivation. You are a slave either to sin or to righteousness. This motivates us on a fundamental level. It is a wake-up call to take a stance, to, to be alerted that this, fa- that this is a fact, that, uh, to be always mindful of this truth. There is, in fact, a danger that you might not be serving who you think you are. Paul refers to obedience here and the idea of being a slave to righteousness um, and what Scripture calls being a slave of Christ. And so the idea of obedience or righteousness or being a slave of Christ or any of those three terms, obedience, righteousness, Christ, we can understand to be the same thing. That is to be a, a slave of obedience is to be a slave of righteous living under Christ. It's a very important side note here. The kind of slave um, relationship or slavery we're talking about here is uh, obviously not the slavery in America's history you might think of when you think of that word. Uh, This is instead a kind of slavery very common in the Roman Empire uh, in New Testament times, really a feature of society at the time. But here we have probably a specific situation in which uh, an individual, whether out of financial need or to pay back a debt or to sacrifice for his family's benefit, is presenting himself willingly as a slave to someone else. Uh, The key here, in this passage at least, is the willingness of of this kind of slave. The voluntary submission or or obedience of the slave. The willingness to commit entirely to doing the bidding of one's master. uh, To give one's life, in, in a sense, to the will of the master. And so Paul is saying, if you have two masters in front of you, you have sin and you have righteousness, you may choose to present yourself to one or the other, but you are actually a slave of whomever you obey. Whosever work you are actually doing, whosever table you are reclining at, in other words, if you say you you present yourself to righteousness, but you are sinning continually and willfully, You really are not a slave of righteousness at all. You are a slave of sin. So Paul's logic here and the motivation to live under God's righteous reign is simple. You are either one or the other, a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. You present yourself to one or the other and you obey one or the other. These are antithetical paths. The the mastery of sin or the mastery of righteousness. It is impossible to truly both serve Christ and sin at the same time. I think the story of a man named John Leonard Orr illustrates this truth clearly. John Leonard Orr was a fire captain. He was an arson investigator in the Glendale Fire Department in the 1980s. And there were a series of fires in Southern California. Um, We know fires like anyone, right? And Orr's colleagues said that he had sort of a sixth sense for the point of origin in fires. That is where a fire started, pinpointing that. 
Well, on October 10th, 1984, Ohl's Home Center, a hardware store in South Pasadena, uh, went to blaze and four people died. Fire authorities deemed it an accident, but Orr insisted after inspection that it was arson. Now, during that time, there was a series of fires, and the fire department started to notice a pattern. There were fires in the vicinity of where arson investigator conferences, yeah, that's a thing, were in California. And as the story goes, soon enough, a fingerprint on a piece of evidence matched Orr's left ring finger. Now, Orr was not just an arson in the normal sense. When all was said and done, it was estimated that Orr set 2,000 fires. And once captured, brush fires in California went down by 90%. One FBI analyst said Orr was probably the most prolific American arsonist of the 20th century. You cannot, by nature, truly be an arson investigator and an arsonist at the same time. You cannot, by nature, truly be a Christian and yet still be enslaved to sin. If you present yourself to sin, your master is sin and you obey sin. If you present yourself to righteousness, your master is righteousness and you obey righteousness. This is the reality. You are either a slave of righteousness or a slave of sin, and there is no other option. These two masters could not be any more opposed or any more different. Our own pastor, John MacArthur, says this, Unlike sin, Christ is the perfect master. The contrast cannot be overstated because it could not be any starker. Sin is the cruelest and most unjust of all masters. Christ is the most loving and merciful. Sin's burden is heavy and loathsome. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Sin traps its slaves in darkness and death. Christ brings light and life to all those who have been made alive together with him. Sin diverts, deceives, and destroys. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so far as slavery to sin consists of everything hateful, harmful, dreadful, despicable, so slavery to Christ entails everything good, glorious, joyous, and right. I love that, that picture of the contrast between sin and righteousness. Now, if you're a Christian tonight, I would simply challenge you, do you think of it this way? Do you think of the fact that you are either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness? Do you love your freedom from sin but also fend for your freedom from righteousness a little bit? 
Do you think of yourself as your own master? Christian, I plead with you tonight by the power of God's word on our hearts, embrace this slavery to Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, very simply, the Bible shows us sin is your master. You live your life, whether outrightly and obviously or not, to please your master, sin. Turn to Jesus tonight as we will see it is the most truly liberating and beautifully captivating thing to live under God's righteous reign. The second motivation for Christian obedience, as we see in this text, is found in verses 17 through 19. And it's this, you were set free from sin and given to righteousness. You were set free from sin and given to righteousness. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now here we see Paul reiterating yet again in short form the work of God in salvation. But thanks be to God, he says. The emphasis here is on God, on his work in us. And what has he done? The the text says three things. He says, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, Two, it says, having been set free from sin. And three, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, grammatically, we can really take the first as one thing, becoming obedient from the heart. And then the second and third as two sides really of the same coin, being set free from sin and being made slaves to righteousness. And these things all happen simultaneously at salvation, but really they're two things. And notice also, for you grammar nerds, the passive voice, right? Have become obedient. Having been set free. Have become slaves of righteousness. This is all the work of Almighty God in us and on our hearts. You see, beyond that fundamental distinction we saw in verse 16 between a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness, that you can only be one or the other, Paul reminds these Roman believers what he has already said in this letter over and over again. And that's what's true of everybody who believes in Jesus savingly. That is this fact. Christian, God has set you free from sin and he has made you a slave of righteousness. And now Paul adds, he has made you obedient from the heart, from within. And so here we find further motivation for obedience in righteousness to God. This is the reality of what he has already done for us in salvation. The shackles of of bondage to sin were loosened, and you were given an obedient heart. You were released from the way that leads to death and put on the path to life. By God's grace, Paul says, you were set free from bondage to sin and made a slave of righteousness. Christian, this is your salvation history. This is your 
reality. And so this is what has already happened. It should motivate us to then live in light of that. Paul points out in this transformation, the Christian has become obedient from the heart to a certain standard of teaching. Now this word standard is the word for a mold, uh, one in which molten metal is poured. And the metal then conforms as it, as it cools down. You see, this is not forced, disingenuous obedience. This is obedience from the heart to God's word, to Christ and his teaching, and to all that the apostles taught. This whole body, this standard of teaching that we were committed to at salvation leads to obedience rooted in humility and willingness and love for him. Because God has set the posture of the Christian's heart this way. I was doing some reading the other day about uh, one of the most majestic animals in all of God's created kingdom, pigeons. But I was reading out about a particular type of pigeon, and these are incredible creatures, homing pigeons. Now they're bred selectively, and these pigeons have an uncanny ability to find their way home over long distances. They have kind of a built-in GPS. Uh, to the location of their home, that is. And in competition, um, they've traveled up to 1,100 miles. These birds have been used as messenger pigeons to, uh, from all the way to, from announcing the winners of the ancient Olympics in antiquity to carrying news and stock prices to transporting microfilm, medicine, mail. And all the way up in, into recent history, uh, in this century, they were used in uh, eastern India to uh, help with emergency news, um, only to be retired due to, quote, the expanded use of the internet. Uh, and I would suggest probably Twitter as well. Um, it's still debated among researchers how exactly it is that homing pigeons find their way home. Now, it's debated among researchers to be possibly the use of the pigeon's sense of smell, uh, using atmospheric odors to navigate. Uh, some say it's the ability to detect the Earth's magnetic, magnetic field through iron particles on the top of its beak to the visual placement of the sun and landmarks. Basically, we don't know. The fact of the matter is that Creator God has given these humble yet amazing creatures a sense for home. Christian, God has given you, in Christ, a sense for home. Your home is under his righteous reign, in his household. Our refuge is our master, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Even though you are a slave to sin, God freed you and made you obedient from the heart. Philippians 2 tells us he has given you the mind of Christ. In Romans 8, we'll see you are guided by the Holy Spirit to obedience to Christ. And we have his word as a guide. God's righteous reign is our home. And so if you can't claim that tonight, but you believe yourself to be a Christian, return to your home under God's righteous reign. Our own pastor John says this of this portion of Scripture. 
Paul is not speaking here of moral and spiritual obligation, but of moral and spiritual reality. He is not teaching here that a Christian ought to be a slave of righteousness, but that every Christian, by divine creation, is made a slave of righteousness and cannot be anything else. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 puts it this way, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so this truth that God has freed us from sin, made us slaves of righteousness, and made us obedient from the heart, this is amazing truth that God would accomplish this transformation in each and every believer. In fact, Paul says in verse 19 of this amazing truth, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking in terms of an illustration. He says, because of your natural limitations in light of this divine truth. That is to say, Paul is using this illustration of slavery and the masters of sin and of righteousness in order to bring this divine truth to a level of human understanding. Paul has shown us here what God has done in making us obedient from the heart, setting us free from sin and making us slaves of righteousness. This is, however, something we are also called to act on, to do. So God has done this, but we are also in this passage called to do. Paul says, look at verse 19, this the, the second part of it. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so just as you used to pursue impurity, that's inward, and lawlessness, outward, Paul says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Notice the sort of life cycle of each of these masters. The lawlessness leads to, the passage says, more lawlessness. And righteousness, Paul says, leads to sanctification, growth in holiness. So as we present our members as slaves to righteousness, we become increasingly God-centered. We become increasingly world-renouncing. Now, this is the only command in our entire passage. Present your members. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Notice before how it was present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Now it's present your your members, your body parts, as other parts of the New Testament describe the same word, members. There is intentionality and specificity to this this is literally every part of your person every member of your body that is to be given in service to righteousness this spiritual reality that god has set us free from sin and made us slaves to righteousness serves as motivation for us to live under his righteous reign because if we are truly his he has done this for us he has done this to us And here we see it is still your responsibility, though, Christian, to present your members as slaves to righteousness. 
to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God who owns you as His own. This truth should inspire us. This, this truth should encourage us. This truth should remind us. And it should drive us to live humbly and, and joyfully under God's righteous reign. In your struggle with sin, in your daily fight against your old master, dwell on this truth that God has done this for you. And return continually to your master. Embrace your Lord, Jesus Christ. The third truth we see in this text that motivates us to live under God's righteous reign is that you are being sanctified and will be glorified. You are being sanctified and will be glorified. Verses 20-23. through For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whereas in verses 17 through 19, the portion we just looked at, we saw our spiritual history, our past, what God has already done for us. Here in verses 20 through 23, we see our spiritual present and future. We see what's true now and into eternity. This also motivates us in our life under God's reign. These two distinct allegiances, either to sin or to righteousness, that we see in this passage, now see each, we, we see that they each have their own fruit and they each have their own end. First, Paul shows the way of sin as master. Think back, he says. Imagine again when sin was your master. When, in verse 21, he says, you were doing, quote, the things of which you are now ashamed. You were free in regard to righteousness, he says, but what fruit were you getting, he asks rhetorically. Was it worth it? Wasn't it a tired and discouraging life? And look back at verse 19. We could say that lawlessness and impurity lead to what? More lawlessness. So the fruit of a lifestyle with sin as master is more sin, more impurity, and more lawlessness. Sin, biblically, is a gateway for more sin. In kind, in depth, and in routine, sin is engraved and ingrained in the sinner's life. This is the cycle of sin, the pattern of sin shown in Romans. If you remember Romans 1, verse 22, the life cycle of sin is described this way. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So verse 24, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And finally in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And listen closely. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give a praise, approval to those who practice them. 
This is exactly what Paul is restating again here in chapter 6. Those who practice such things deserve to die in the kingdom of a holy God. Look at chapter 6, verse 21. For the end of those things is death, he says. Now Paul is here referring to eternal death, eternal separation from God, spiritual death. We see it here in contrast to spiritual life, eternal life. The very end of the road for those who serve sin as master is eternal hell. But throughout Romans, Paul has shown us the incredible grace and mercy of our God. That in the face of man's unrighteousness, God has also extended his grace through his son Christ Jesus. Look back at chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And listen carefully to this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is exactly what Paul is saying again here in chapter 6. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get with the God of all righteousness as your master, leads to sanctification. It leads to further Christ-likeness, to holiness, to maturity in Christ, to the continual bearing of the fruits of the Spirit, to rejoicing in suffering, because God uses it to sanctify us and give us hope. Paul says elsewhere, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. There is great promise here in Romans 6 that though sin remains as a reality in our flesh, and we'll see that on full display in chapter 7, that sin remains as a reality in our flesh and in this fallen world, Romans 6 shows us you were, past tense, set, free from sin, and made obedient from the heart, so the Spirit, by His Word, will sanctify you. This is the reality for the believer present, and this is the reality for the believer future in this life. And Paul says, not only that, in this life under God's righteous reign, it not only makes us more like Christ, but it leads us to its end, eternal Life. Life forever. Life with God in eternity. Life forever in the presence of your Master, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. When God will say, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your Master. seeing these divergent eternities of these two ways, sin and righteousness, 
serves as the final and full motivation for us tonight to joyfully, to humbly, to submissively live under God's righteous reign. You see, seeing the fruit of each, seeing lawlessness or sanctification anchors our thoughts on the the justice of God. And if we choose to be a slave of righteousness, it gives us hope in trials. It helps us to see the trajectory of where our Master is taking us when we can't see anything else. As we seek God's will for us in sanctification, and seeing the end, seeing eternal life, gives us hope in the beginning. It lends us aid. It gives us hope in the middle of the storm. God's promises will shine through and prove Him faithful. As a slave of God, you are being sanctified and you will have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that should motivate us. That should grow grow in us a desire to live under His righteous reign joyfully. Christ is our Master. Now notice verse 23, an often quoted verse, but almost an afterthought, a, a modification in context as we look at it. It brings clarity to this dichotomy between sin and and righteousness as masters. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This drives a final wedge between the two ways of sin and of righteousness. You see, the wages of sin is death. That is, what is rightfully earned under the master of sin, under this cruel master, it's what Paul says is rightly deserved if one serves sin. In God's economy, those who serve sin deserve their just punishment. Death. But look at the opposite. The end for the righteous is a gift. A free gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It is a free gift. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, while sin's payout is death, the unearned reward, the gift of being a slave of Christ is eternal life. While sin gives you eternal separation from God, Christ brings you into his presence forever. Under the master sin, you earn your keep. Under Christ, you are given a gift you could never earn on your own. Tonight we've seen this incredible truth of our freedom from slavery to sin and our enslavement to the perfect Master, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And so we must remember often we can only serve one, sin or righteousness. We must think upon our salvation, how God freed us from sin, gave us to righteousness, and made us obedient from the heart. In GOC, we must know and trust that God will sanctify us and ultimately bring us to glory with Him. Humbly and joyfully embrace God's righteous reign over your life.